hello there. You're listening to Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby. If you're a long-time listener, you know that we deliver you recordings of live talks and ideas events direct from the stages of the Sydney Opera House. If you're just joining us, strap in. We just hosted a festival called Antidote, and every Friday for the next while, we'll be bringing a festival session straight to your podcast app. Enjoy the show. My name's Eric Jensen. I'm the editor-in-chief at the Saturday paper. Thank you for coming out this afternoon to Fables. Um, this, is, this is an event where the maladies of life are retold like the stories that we hear in childhood um, when morals were um, obvious and easily learnt um, and, and it, is a, it is a thing that is in perhaps short supply <laughs> out of childhood. Um, I was thinking about this event, thinking about um, fables and the way in which, as children, um, we hear stories or things happen to us, and I, I think the further we get from childhood, the less clear um, the meaning of those things are. And um, I, I was thinking, as a child, I had two very large ducks, pet ducks, um, and this is not entirely a fable, but it's a brief story to get us started. <laughs> um, and we were living in, in Newtown, and these ducks used to follow my sister and I up the street uh, to drop my sister at school. And um, we kind of we looked like a, like a Michael Looney cartoon, um, <laughs> except my sister and I were vaccinated, of course. And um, my, my, my mother wasn't working at the time, so Michael Looney had no problem with her, but um, other, other parents were. Um, and we, one, we dropped my sister at school with these enormous ducks. I was, it's, you might struggle to believe it, but I was quite a small child, um, and so the ducks were significantly larger than me. And uh, on this particular day, I hadn't uh, wanted to get dressed, and so I was wearing my, uh, my quite small pyjamas. And I saw on the street Monica Trappiger, who at the time was um, the host of Play School, and I asked my mum to wait with the ducks because I didn't want to be embarrassed so I could go and make small talk <laughs> with Monica Trappiger at the traffic lights. Um, and I was quite embarrassed at the stage that I was wearing my pyjamas. Did they have was, ducks on them? No, they were, um, they were... I think they were synthetic on reflection, but they were kind of checked, and the shorts were shorter than they should have been. Um, and I was trying to make small talk with Monica Trappiger, and I was telling her that I was embarrassed that I was wearing my pyjamas, and she said to me, that's all right, I wish I was wearing my pyjamas. And at that time, I was four years old, flirting with Monica Trappiger. And um, <laughs> what I knew more than anything at that time was that adults didn't wear pyjamas. Um, and that what Monica Trappiger was possibly saying was that she wished she was here naked on the street corner with me. Um, which seemed to me, you know, a kind Where of delicious moment as a four-year-old. There is a point to this story. <laughs> Recently, I was in a, a foyer of a theatre and I saw Monica Trappiger. And so I went over to her and started to tell her this story. Are you wearing your pyjamas? At this stage, <laughs> I was... Well, it, now there's no difference anymore. It's just become one thing for me. But um, I started t telling Monica Trappiger this story and realising that the meanings of childhood leaves you sometime after childhood. I got partway through the story and realised there was no way I could possibly tell this story to Monica Trappier because it was, it was offensive and, and even slightly menacing. <laughs> um, and five minutes or so in, I just stopped. There was no conclusion to my story and I just stared at Monica Trappier and she kind of stared back at me and said, is that it? 
<laughs> and um, that's what this event is about. It's about taking childhood uh, and, and trying to relearn the lessons that we've forgotten since then. Um, in my case, don't speak to strangers, um, especially strangers who you seem to know. Um, and so I hope with that framing, um, you will join me in welcoming uh, our writers and speakers um, today. I'll just cheer for them. Um, <laughs> Sorry, the dog thinks the event just ended. Yeah, well, that's very <laughs> kind of her. Hooray. Um, our first speaker is Kate Holden. I'm going to introduce people just before they speak so you don't forget who is who, but also so that I keep my notes in order. Um, Kate is the author of In My Skin and The Romantic, both of them terrific memoirs. Terrific. Yeah. They are. Yeah, page turners. Thank you. Each of them. <laughs> Two of the six books I finished were written by Kate Holden. <laughs> She's a former columnist with The Age and a frequent writer with the Saturday paper. She's been nominated for numerous awards, translated into multiple languages, is working on a new major book of non-fiction, which I think will be out next year. Yeah, stonking. It's 180,000 words at the moment. It has got to be half of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's major. Um, and she's also one of the nicest people I know. So, oh, thank Kate, you, Jens. would you start our readings? May I? Um, mine's a little bit sad. Once upon a time, there was a farmer, her husband, and a chicken. The farmer and her husband were blessed. They had survived their childhoods in the highlands of Scotland. They had survived the potato blight and the collapse of the fishing and the failure of the linen industry. They'd endured Calvinism and the evangelical rapturism, and they'd endured two dozen winters and all that rain. They knew blue knuckles and wind-dry skin and bog-wet feet. They knew the sin of sex and the fear of strangers, the bliss of a little salt in their food and the empty scrape of a pot of porridge. They knew suffering and they knew the smallest of hope. They knew the abandoned valley, village in the next valley and the sheep crawling across the hills, the village meeting and the decree of the clearances. They knew the crofter life was finished for them. Then they knew the leaky, stinky, soggy inside of a transport vessel on the seas for three months heading south. The farmer and her husband got off the boat into the sweet air and blue sunshine of Sydney Harbour. They glanced at each other and knew that they would have a good life together. They would prosper. They were the lucky ones. They got their patch of country. They pulled tree trunks into a rectangle. They stood there. This'll be the house, the farmer said. The farmer's husband edged one of the trunks a bit further out and fetched a new one to make the gap. Let's make it a good one, he said. Their hands grew scarred with splinters from a wood they hadn't even known existed when their hands were first made inside their mother's bellies. Now those trees were in their very flesh. It got hot out there. Some days, 100 degrees, and their skin had never been so slick with sweat. A dry wind blew, not like the cold one in Scotland. This was a high, hot wind that streamed through the gaps in the wattled walls of their little home and the farmer's hair blew around her face as she kissed her husband, and they lay down on their sack of flour and promised each other how they'd make a big family, and their children would sing the old songs, and their blonde hair would blow like dandelion fuzz in this wind, singing wind of their new fortune. 
They barely scratched the surface, happy to dig in some crops in the big grassy plains, cut some timber for firewood. They st stuck turnips and potatoes in the soil, put dung over them, a little corn. They dreamed of wheat, of the farmer and her husband strewing seeds and the wind blowing them into place to grow. Frugal, they rose early. The porridge was still warm in its pot from the evening meal when they scraped it into their bowls in the morning. The farmer and her husband had babies. Some died, and the trees drooped over the little graves, and the farmer thought those trees heartless not to weep their evergreen leaves as she wept. But other babies lived, and they grew strong on their bowls of barley and potatoes and bush honey. Occasionally, dark figures came and stood beside the trees, gazed at the creaking new house. They knocked on the door and asked for flour, for meat. The farmer gave them a little, kept most for herself, shut the door when they'd gone. She watched them leave and they watched her stay. One day there was the knock at the door and she gave food and the porridge was being scraped when the neighbour came with his dogs and his guns and the dark people ran and in their fear they left behind some tools and something else. That chicken. They did have a brood, the farmers. It was a comfort to eat an egg here in the new land and it tasted just as it had in the old one. Now, here was a ha fat and happy hen with a bright eye. It gave them a bright and happy glance and in the morning when the farmer put her hand in the nest and the egg was cold, she drew it out with a sigh and dropped it and it did not break. For the egg was not shell and yolk, but gold. It was a tiny egg of solid gold. The farmer shouted for her husband and they stared at it and then they kissed for joy. They bought wheat seed, they bought plaster for the house and they bought meat. They got themselves new clothes and they hired men to work on their land and they gazed out and squeezed each other's knotted, scarred hand and knew they were the lucky ones. Their children grew, one took a husband and now the old ones stayed in the house pleased with their labour while the new generation had the farm. The old happy hen had given them a chick, they raised her too and her chicks in turn but there were no more golden eggs. Now they wanted more land to put their hired hands to work upon. Their neighbours had wheat. Each morning, the second farmer and her husband took up their heavy axes and mallets and smashed trees. Down they came, and the animals were crushed beneath the boughs and the grass grew dry where it had been moist, and the sun beat down on the shadeless lands now, but shining wheat might grow. The farmer put her hand to her belly as she scattered the corn for the chickens, and she whispered to them sometimes, an egg an egg, give me your eggs. And one night the chickens stirred as the wind rose, that hot, wonderful wind that the farmer and her husband loved, even though it dried their soil, even though it streamed through the cracks in the home they had made. And in the morning, another golden egg. They had the old house knocked down then and a huge manor put up with parapets and ceilings and paintings on the walls filled with fine furniture and they had a garden laid out with, and cupboards full of porcelain. They had servants and many fine horses. The farmer had divine dresses and piles of rings and the husband had beautifully tailored suits, fancy hats, a leather whip with an ivory handle. She stuck jewels on pins in her hair and they gave marvellous dinners the table piled with sweets and roasts, puddings and fruits, lollies and soups. All around the house, the trees were pushed and the soil was turned and they ploughed it and they furrowed it and they left the fields fallow to dry the surface and as the winds blew the top of the soil away in great dark drifts, the farmer and her husband and all their neighbours watched lovingly and said to each other, if it blows, it grows. This farmer and her husband too 
grew old and their children took the farm. They planted their wheat. They poisoned the little grasses that came up and they laid bait for the birds and animals that would eat the wheat and they made more and more paddocks and they grew more and more wheat and they grew richer than ever and their crops grew to the blue horizon. They were making their fortune, they had it in their grasp, they were making everything better, tidier, more like their idea of home. They took wilderness and waste and they made it food in their bellies. Nothing grew in their land except wheat and corn. The land shone. When the farmer took the soil in her hand, it lay there as heavy and solid and dead as a golden egg, as her empty womb. They had the daughter of the daughter of the bright happy hen, and she slept in a hen house of fine wood and painted ceilings. They fed her the best corn and lined her nest with silk. The farmer came more than once a day to visit her hen, once to check for an egg. There were no more golden eggs. The farmer came at other times simply to stare at her. One day the farmer said to her husband, what if that hen of ours is filled to the brim with gold? If we opened her up, we would be richer than kings or emperors. The husband stared at her. She went on, with all the gold that must be inside that hen, we could have whatever we want. The husband held her tight. He dreamed a baby and how their children's blonde hair would blow like the golden wheat that grew all around them and how happy they would all be. The husband looked at the farmer. He fetched his knife. So they went to the hen coop and they took up the fat, happy hen. They cut her little body open with a sharp knife. And inside, she was not made of gold. She was meat and bone and blood like any other chicken. The next morning's egg was already made inside her, the last golden egg there would be. A child beneath the old gum tree began to cry and the farmer and her husband stared at each other over the body of their hen. There was a plague of rabbits that year and another of locusts. The golden wheat took rust and what was left blew down in a storm and was rotted in its roots by the rain that followed. The great gum by the corner of the house over the baby's graves loosened in its dry soil not held by its fellows and fell upon the veranda. A fire took out the hen house. Moths ate the fine clothes in the wardrobes and the earth beneath it all, parched and crumbled, bleached and salted, it blew away in the hot high wind and they could do nothing but watch it go. The wind blew through the empty rooms of their mansion and through the trees that were only ghosts now and it blew through the skeleton of the hen house and it rocked an empty cradle. It pushed at the faces of the farmer and her husband and away it took all their hopes, their voices, their wisdom and their greed. All that left was silence. Thank you. Oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Oh, yeah, cheery. <laughs> Story of Australia, guys. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm sure when you put your son to bed, it's just as, <laughs> just as feel good. Nothing but agricultural tragedy in my house. Yeah. Um, this format, after each story, I'll just speak briefly to our readers about, um, about what they've written. Yeah. And it occurs to me, Kate, with your work, a lot of what you've published is about greed and about the destruction yeah. that greed invites. Yeah. Personal greeds, but also larger yeah. greeds. Is that something that has felt uh. conscious since you first started writing? Well, 
it might be that I'm interested in how much you are allowed to be greedy, you know, um, how much you're entitled to want, um, especially with any kind of conscience. Are you allowed to want to consume? Are you allowed to want to desire? Are you allowed to take up space? When I was a, a young one, especially even a child, I wasn't really comfortable that I was allowed to take up a lot of space. So I think maybe I, I imagine a lot of my life has been about greed and when it's appropriate or not. So my first couple of books were about um, sexuality and that is a form of greed and, and anxiety. Um, and now I'm um, turning my kind of thoughts to other people's greed. <laughs> Give myself a break for a while. <laughs> Still haven't worked it out. But you're always writing not just about condemning greed, but also about the way in which greed can be a kind of liberation and the way in which greed yeah. can be a way towards yourself. Um, I guess so, occupying something. This fable I was writing, I, I wanted to make the farmer and the husband sympathetic, really. I, I don't want to condemn them, but they're, they're framed to be greedy in a way because they start off with little. You know, it's easy for someone like me, a middle-class kind of, you know, princess, but someone else who has to make everything for themselves, you know, I don't know, do you call that greed? The story is about someone who gets a bounty but then can't resist taking a little bit further, you know, and in doing so wrecks it. Everything. I'm interested, the book that you're working on at the moment is about, um, it's about the killing of... Um, yeah, an environmental, an environmental officer yeah. by a farmer whose land was being inspected. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's seems a greedy man. A greedy man, I think. perhaps. Mm. It seems so much like a fable, that particular story. Mm. Yeah, it really does. It really does. This is about the, the very sad and, um, and um, traumatic event that happened five years ago here in New South Wales when environmental officer Glenn Turner was murdered by a farmer um, who was illegally clearing vegetation. And um, I was asked to write about it, and I thought it would be a, just a murder story, you know, with some, you know, drama. But it, it reads like a fable. It's about hubris and overreach, misunderstandings. The farmer was trying to establish his family on the land, and he was anxious that they wouldn't have enough. But they're very wealthy people. They had a lot. And he couldn't resist going for the block which had the, the last block which had any native vegetation on it. And he wanted that one, that one as well. And that was his undoing. <laughs> And the, and the family um, was destroyed in the making of this dynasty. So it ends up even with the brothers turning brother against brother, brother against father, um, financial ruin, you know, um, murder, um, incarceration. The whole thing is a, is a, a terrible morality fable, but it, it's really good to write about. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for your thank story. You. Um, our next writer, Fiona Wright, um, is a writer I'm hugely envious of um, <laughs> because she's one of those people who looks at the world and knows that it means something and uh, is able in her essays to articulate what that is. Uh, I'm glad that's where you went with that. I was wondering <laughs> the moment there. Yeah. <laughs> um, her books... Of, of book of essays, sorry, small acts of disappearances, of disappearance, I should say, won the 2016 Kibble Award and the Queensland Literary Award for nonfiction. She's an author of poetry. Also, her collection Knuckled won the Dame Mary Gilmore Award, and Domestic Interior was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award. And her new essay collection, which is really 
fantastic is the world was whole. Yes. Yeah, no, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, so <laughs> I'm I'm talking today about the fable of the lion and the mouse, and it's it's possibly a lesser known fable. And what happens is a mouse accidentally wakes a lion from its sleep. And in his resulting rage, the lion threatens to kill the mouse and eat it. So the mouse begs for his life and insists that tiny creature as he is, he's really no trophy, nothing to write home about as prey. And thus the lion decides to show mercy. Later, maybe much later, maybe only a little later, this much is unclear, the lion steps into a snare and is trapped by a much larger, presumably human, hunter. And his demise is imminent. That is, until our little friend, the mouse, reappears on the scene and gnaws through the ropes, binding the lion in order to repay him from his kindness. The moral of the story, I guess, is that mercy is always rewarded, or that you reap what you sow, or that small creatures and little people can affect big change. Now, I used to like this fable, and I think it's because I've always been mouse-sized myself. I'm wearing my big girl shoes, but I'm not quite a metre and a half tall, and I've spent the entirety of my adult life underweight because of a number of chronic conditions that make it difficult for me to eat enough to address this. And as it turns out, I've developed a bit of a chip on my shoulder about barely reaching the height of most other people's shoulders. So anything that aligns tiny with mighty is gonna get me on board. Because if I'm the mouse, it's easy for you to underestimate me. And if I'm the mouse, and I can still wield great power without actually being in charge. But here's the thing, everybody wants to be the mouse. Nobody wants to think of themselves as Leonine. Everybody likes to think of themselves as the underdog. Sorry, underdog. Uh, especially, in this, especially in this country, which loves the stories where it's the underdog that wins. Everyone wants to think that they're the little people, the common people, the everyman, despite the fact that it's statistically impossible that this can always be true. And our politicians, I think, are aware of this, speaking as they all do and have done for decades about ordinary Australians, everyday Australians, working families, forgotten peoples, battlers even as they offer tax cuts to high-income earners and negative gearing to property owners and public funds to private, school, um, to private schools. And they're able to get away with this in no small part because most Australians like to think that they are ordinary, everyday and definitively middle class. Before the election in 2016, so the penultimate one, um, the Sydney Morning Herald launched an interactive tool that allowed its readers to estimate on a little slider how well off they thought they were in comparison to the rest of the population. The tool then asked some actual quantitative questions about income and assets before displaying the actual financial position of the reader in question on that same scale. And it was so popular, by the way, that the site crashed which I think really says something about a population that claims to neither have class nor care about it at all. But what soon became apparent with this tool was that around 80% of the people who used it placed themselves somewhere in the middle. 80%. Regardless how moderate their incomes were, 
regardless of how ridiculously high their actual incomes were. 80%. Almost everyone, that is, assumed that they were middle class. And the only people who turned out to be accurate in their estimations were those who were sitting somewhere on or near the poverty line. But that's another story altogether. What I'm saying here is that chances are you think you're middle Australia. Middle class, the common people, the mouse. But if you've disposable income enough to buy tickets to a festival of ideas, action and change, instead of having to prioritise that money for, you know, rent or food or medicine, you're probably not the mouse. I'm not the mouse. This is not to say that we're necessarily the lion. I'm not saying that we're the bad guys here, just that we're definitely not the hero. None of us. And we're culpable and our identifications are misaligned. And this is the problem with fables, sorry, Eric. Especially in the modern world, they're too easy. They're too quick to make us feel okay with ourselves and with the culture that we inhabit. I don't believe that we live in a moral universe and we certainly don't live in a moral society. We don't live in a world in which those in power are merciful and ordinary people can easily affect change. And I don't like simple metaphors because they simplify the world. They lead us to expect our lives to pan out according to their patterns, and when they don't, when good deeds don't reap rewards and bad ones go unpunished, and when horrible things beset good people, a large part of the problem and a huge portion of the pain come about because we can't make meaning out of what has happened. We can't fit what's happened into these neat and tidy narratives that we've come to take for granted. More often than not, we're a little bit lion and a little bit mouse sometimes tortoise, sometimes hare, both scorpion and frog. And more often than not, it's us who's sauntering about wearing no clothes. That's human and that's complicated and that's okay. It serves us well, I think, to muddle up our metaphors and fuck about with our fables and to tell more complicated stories about ourselves and our world. I just wanted to say fuck at the Opera House. <laughs> <laughs> That was definitely five minutes yesterday. <laughs> no, no, that was good. Thank you, Fiona. <laughs> I wanted to ask, um, when you sit down to write, do you, th do you feel that writing should have or deserves to have some kind of moral purpose? When you write an essay, does it, does it need to have a, a moral intent? No. <laughs> usually, what I'm, usually what I'm doing when I sit down to write, and especially in essays, is... Um, figure out what's bugging me about a particular idea or set of ideas or something that has happened. And more often than not, what turns out, what it, it turns out that the problem is that there's a tidy narrative or a neat metaphor that I've suspected should fit here and it turns out that it hasn't. And, and that's what becomes interesting and sticky and, and juicy. That's the stuff that I can't immediately make sense of. Um, I don't, know, I don't know where it comes from, but I've realised lately that um, every time I get very upset about something, it's because I've thought this isn't what should have happened. And that's crazy. <laughs> like, nothing should and shouldn't happen. It just does. Um, but, you know, often that kind of... that moment of pain is because there's a, a disconnect between the way things are supposed to pan out and what's actually happened. Because you assume that the world 
is better than it is or that things should be right? Yeah, or that, or that just... Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately... Um, uh, so I have a, a friend of mine who also lives with disability and chronic illness and talked about having this ghost woman that haunts her that is the image of the woman she was supposed to grow up into before she got sick. Um, and she couldn't quite let go of, go of this, even though you know, the ghost woman, by very definition, is a phantom. Doesn't exist, didn't exist, never can exist. Um, but it's still a very hard thing to let go of. And I, that resonated with me so much, this idea that there was a particular person into whom I was supposed to grow up. Is that right, Grandma? I think so. To whom? Yeah, yeah, great, fantastic, well done. Um, and that's not how my life turned out. I got, I got sick when I was 19 years old and it really took me the best part of a decade to figure out what was going on and what to do next because we have these narratives that when you get sick, you get diagnosed, you get treated, you get better and off you go in your life and that's not the reality for so many of us. I think that's kind of one of the... The problem is a problem of metaphor um, and, a, and a problem of sort of these um, expected trajectories. And I think trying to figure out different ways to think about what is supposed to happen um, or even just trying to imagine a world in which nothing is supposed to happen, stuff just happens and you roll with it, um, is actually a very difficult thing to do. Mm. Thank you, Fiona Wright. Mm. <laughs> Our next uh, reader is Deborah Adelaide, a researcher, editor, book reviewer, best known maybe as the writer of The Household Guide to Dying, um, also known for her collection of short stories, letters to George, oh, sorry, letter to George Clooney, letters single, you didn't send too many, single. I appreciate that. <laughs> I didn't uh, one. <laughs> also shortlisted for the Kibble Literary Award, but not the same year that Fiona won, so there's no, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. no need. It was, it was cool. For animus. Yep. Um, you're, you're the judge of numerous literary awards, the Vogel Award, New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, Patrick White Award, and the author of the recently long-listed novel for the Stella Prize, The Women's Pages. And I'm very excited to hear what you will read. Thank you. <clears throat> There were once three very powerful dogs, a Malamute, a Scotty dog and a police dog. They all seemed to be friends, sharing toys and bones, but one day they became involved in a massive fight. The fight was over the biggest toy of all. Rubber chicken, squeaky ball, country called Australia, it didn't really matter, as that wasn't the point. <laughs> the point was about becoming top dog. In the middle of this fight, Two of these dogs calmed down and sniffed each other's bums. This is my leader, said the Scotty dog, putting his paw on the shoulder of the Malamute and showing his lovely white teeth. Thanks, Skodo, <laughs> said the Mal, unaware of how sharp those teeth really were. The fight had been started by the third dog, a big, slightly cross-eyed blue healer called Plod, who'd previously been a police dog. Plod still relied upon his policing instincts, 
biting his victim's, victim's legs without really thinking. It was this irrational behaviour that led to Plod's attack. But in fact, the male had mistakenly thought that the rest of his pack was loyal and that he was the most agile of them all. The dog known as Skodo, meanwhile, had been dancing around performing in the background for quite a while. At the start of his career, he'd bark at anyone who wouldn't play with him, saying where the bloody hell were they and so on. He was an all-white terrier, a bit daggy, a bit friendly, a bit game, always having a go to get a go, always showing those teeth when he smiled. One day, he ran into the very middle of the dog park carrying a round piece of coal. <laughs> he dropped it on the grass and panted over it, ran around it in little circles, picked it up and dropped it again until others paid him attention and said what a good boy he was. He tended to get under everyone's feet, yapping constantly, but his persistence paid off. And by the time of that massive fight, he'd also become very, very agile indeed. Thus, while Mal and Plod were at each other's throats, Skodo simply ran straight, straight between their legs to stand in front of everyone saying, here I am, your new top dog. How easy was that? Now, this new top dog belonged to a special group which met in different spots all over the country every Sunday and talked about being compassionate, loving and generous. Because of this, a pack of older dogs asked him if some stray dogs far away at the edge of the country could come and live here. These strays had been mauled by other dogs who didn't like the colour of their coats or the way they barked and had run far away from their homes. Some of them had whole packs who'd been killed, including the puppies. All these strays wanted was to move in a bit closer, get microchipped, find new kennels and get on with their lives. The top dog's advisers counselled him sternly, saying he couldn't change his bark now, he had to bark the same way his pack had been barking for years. So they all barked again and again. Being a stray is illegal. No stray who comes here by the back door will ever find a kennel in this place. You have to come to the front door and sit on the mat like everyone else. And then they kept running up and down the entire fence, barking ferociously at anyone who came close. The barking was constant, day and night. Soon after, Skodo decided it was time for a new election, which meant he had to go out and chase buses, but not necessarily travel on them. <laughs> Lick lots of faces, sniff an enormous number of backsides, eat heaps of sausages in white bread and stick his nose right into the groin of others, groins of others he didn't like. On the night of the election, he stood on a platform and barked over and over, how good is Australia? How good are Australians? Hearing this, a skinny black dog way up the back of the crowd said excitedly, did he say strays? Did he say how good are strays? Is he going to let us belong in the pack after all? Plod overheard this comment and growled back ferociously. Of course not, you dirty little mongrel. You'll be sent back to whatever flea-ridden island you've come from and with a bit of luck you'll soon have water lapping at your door. After this triumph, Skodo decided what he needed more than anything was a new collar. He ordered designers from all over the country to bring him samples. 
One showed him a collar with a nifty solar-powered light that flashed in the dark. Another offered him a beautiful and flexible red, black and yellow collar with an embroidered heart. But the top dog didn't like any of these designs. Another came and explained that her collar was woven entirely from a lovely soft fibre cable. He only growled at that. It's not nearly as good as the copper wire one I've already got. Pity that's wearing out. It looked like finding the perfect collar would be impossible. Skodo went back to his kennel to rest his head on his paws, expose the whites of his eyes and sigh meaningfully in, until someone brought his dinner. How good are goodos, he thought. Then two designers arrived with the most brilliant idea of all. Mr Top Dog, they said, you are so esteemed that none of these designs is worthy of you. But we will make you a collar out of a material so rare and delicate that it will be thinner than gossamer. In fact, it will be invisible. What's this material called? Sir, this thin, delicate, invisible fabric is so rare it has no name. The top dog understood at once and began to pant in excitement. It would match perfectly with his policies. On the first day that Skodo went out wearing his new invisible collar, all the other dogs barked their approval. He was trotting up and down the length of the country, basking in adoration until finally a young dog standing by, just a puppy really, stared closely and saw that the top dog's neck was completely naked. Hey, said the dog to her mother in a very loud voice, top dog isn't wearing a collar. There's no collar at all. Her mother shushed her. Be quiet, Jacinda. <laughs> You'll get into trouble saying things like that. And indeed, from somewhere came a vicious roar to put a sock down her throat or else. It was that savage Alan Sation dog again, <laughs> who'd been terrorising the country for ages. All around, the other dogs yapped in shock, then whimpered, licked their lips, slung away, growled at each other, or just lay down in the middle of the road to lick their genitals. But not before that young dog was jeered, then arrested, muzzled, choke-chained, and sent to the pound, along with the other stray dogs, brindles, crossbreds, dogs with missing ears or only three legs, and all the other dogs who refuse to heal, fetch, or play dead, but continue instead to chase cars, chew shoes, scale fences, dig holes, and howl at the moon. Barking plaintively but persistently through the nights, these dogs still join that young dog in her cry. Our top dog, they say, wears no collar. Thank you. Well, I wonder what that could be about. <laughs> <laughs> Having um, spent a lot of the election campaign on the buses of the two leaders for quarterly essay, I have to say that was an um, upsetting flashback. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Eric. Should have warned you. Should have given you a content warning. Deborah, I'm interested to know, um, you know, you, you, you work around um, refugee outreach as well as the writing that you do. Um, a tiny bit. A tiny yeah. bit. The, the place that you feel... Um, 
despair has when it comes to to writing, to you know, to trying to make sense of policies in this country that seem unconscionable to many of the people who live in this country. Yeah, and I should imagine to many of the people who come to events like Antidote. I feel great despair and it's it's basically comes back to leadership. There's just no leadership at all. And I might be really simple-minded, but I think if both major parties have a bipartisan policy on refugees, why can't they have a bipartisan policy that actually embraces refugees and allows asylum seekers to come here? What do they have, what do they got to lose? I've got a fantasy about, I was gonna say Skodo, that would be very, very <laughs> irreverent, Scott Morrison, and Anthony Albanese sitting down, having a beer one day, and just deciding, well, we're going we're gonna to stop this madness, this, this madness. We're going to stop it now. We're going to close those places, and we're going to bring the asylum seekers here, shake their hands and have another beer. Mm. Why isn't it that easy? Let me be Prime Minister for a day. I'll just one day, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I'll even drink a beer. Did you read... The Emperor's New Clothes as a child? Yes, I did. And what did you think it was about then? And was it any different to what you thought it was about when you went and reread it to write the fable you wrote today? When I was a child, I thought it was about how when you're a child, you've got to be really, really careful of what you say. I thought it was, really? I thought it was a story about a child being, being cautioned and, of course, reading it rereading it as, as an adult. It's, it's about vanity and the absurdity of, of um, people in power and about the potential of people like the child in that story to just cut through to the truth. Deborah, thank you again so much. Uh, our final storyteller for the afternoon. And we are doing a terrific job with time. I just want that to be recognised, <laughs> everyone. Um, Wendy Harmer is a comic broadcaster, journalist, columnist, television host, playwright and author. When I went to write this bio, actually, I got quite lost um, for a long time You're reading all the things slushy. that you'd done. Um, you were the host of the ABC TV's Big gig. Well, it's a long time ago. It was a very good yeah. show, very popular with the audience. 30 years this year. Yeah. Um, you're the best part of Today FM's Morning Crew, um, which was topping the Sydney ratings for 11 years. And now, whenever I come onto your show on the ABC, if I hear a traffic report and then hear you talking, I feel like I'm back in my childhood. I get very nostalgic before I get to talk to you. <laughs> Um, you're currently co-host, of course, of uh, the ABC Sydney Breakfast Show with Robbie Buck, and I am delighted that you're going to Thank tell you. us a story. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. The uh, fable that I'm going to address today is the scorpion and the frog. Um, a lot of um, um, cultures have claimed this story, Persia, um, Russia, India, and so it's a classic, and I'll just tell it very, very quickly for, for reference. Um, one day, a scorpion was standing by a river, and 
uh, rather, a frog was standing by a river and a scorpion approached the frog and says, could you take me across the river on your back? And uh, the frog replied, well, no, of course I won't. You'll sting me if I do. And the scorpion replies, well, nonsense. If I did that, I would drown. So the frog agreed. Halfway across the river, the scorpion stung the frog and wailed the frog as it sank beneath the waves. Now I will die and you will drown. Why did you do that? And the scorpion replied, because it is in my nature. One day, a frog was on the bank of a river in the Murray-Darling Basin <laughs> when he was approached by a scorpion. Greetings, frog, the scorpion said. Can you give me a ride across the river? I need to get to my farm. Your farm, replied the frog. No, <laughs> no way, I know who you are. You've come from one of those big agribusiness irrigators upstream that's killing our rivers. You've got no interest in anything but profits. You don't care about us frogs at all. If I give you a ride across on my back, you'll sting me halfway across and I'll die. Now, why would I do that, said the scorpion. You need food, right? The world's population is exploding. We all have to eat. Farmers are your friends. We're world's best practice irrigators. When scorpions do well, frogs do too. Both you and the river are entirely safe with me. Safe, scoffed the frog. You're all corporate entities these days who send profits offshore to the crabs in the Cayman Islands. You're greedy and mindless and selfish and have no morals at all. I'd pay for a litre of milk, more for a litre of milk, if I thought it would go to the real farmers, but I know it won't. It's a con job. And besides, I'm already doing my bit. I've gone vegan. <laughs> the scorpion shouted, I suppose you know why the Amazon is disappearing at the farthest, fastest rate in history, why it's a hot spot for deforestation, soybean crops for your wanky vegan latte and tofu lifestyles. You inner city greeny frogs don't know anything about the bush. Besides, this is the worst drought in history. We're doing it tough. Typical of you to turn your backs on us in our hour of need. You'd starve to death without us. You frogs are un-Australian. The frog puffed up his neck and croaked back. And you know why it's the worst drought ever? Climate change. This is about more than this backwater we lately call Australia, or you, or me. We frogs are global citizens and you're killing the planet. What are you not understanding here, said the scorpion as he raised his deadly tail. It's a drought. That's why the rivers are in peril. May I quote you the words of Dorothea McKellar? I love a sunburnt country of droughts and flooding rains. She wrote that in 1908, more than a century ago. It's always been this way. It's part of the natural cycle. There's nothing natural about it said the frog. I don't know why you can't see that. You're the ones causing the rivers to run dry. You're either stupid or willfully blind. Can't you see? All day, the argument continues. The cries of snowflake and right-wing nut job echoed down the bank of the river. And on hearing the ruckus, a kingfisher landed on the branch of a nearby gum tree and regarded the frog and the scorpion with a gimlet eye. They became fearfully silent. They were frightening. They were frightened of the looming shadow of a kingfisher that would have them both for dinner. So what have we here, boomed the kingfisher. It seems to be an irreconcilable difference, the modern malaise. Two sides which refuse to understand the other and wishing both 
to an uncertain future. Perhaps I can step in here and suggest a bipartisan inquiry which can take submissions and make some recommendations for a way to go forward to the benefit of all involved. And why should we trust you, the frog and the scorpion asked in unison? Because, replied the kingfisher, I could eat you if I cared to. I urge you to put your faith in a higher power that truly wants the best for all. From my lofty perspective, I can see both sides of the river. Trust me. With no choice but to trust the kingfisher, unless they ended up as dinner, the frog and the scorpion reluctantly agreed to cease their argument as the kingfish gathered his court to deliberate. They heard much chattering and fluttering of wings in the branches above as the afternoon dragged on. The kingfisher will prove me right, whispered the frog. I'm not giving you a ride on my back. You're going nowhere, loser. And the <laughs> kingfisher is on my side, snarled the scorpion. You'll see, I'll ride you across a, a river of your left-eyed tears. <laughs> the kingfisher, on hearing their on, on, ongoing argument, called down to the riverbank. Quiet, he demanded, a little longer. The deliberation of the great, the just, and the wise takes time, patience. The evening fell into silence as the frog and scorpion waited for a judgment that might please them both. Nothing came, and so they waited and waited. At dawn, with no solution in sight, the morning rays of the sun illuminated the river, once flowing mightily, but now mere stagnant pools. A million fish floated to the surface of the water and exhaled a million dying breaths. Just before it sank into the mud, a giant Murray cod rolled back its great eyes into its scaly head and regarded the frog, scorpion and kingfisher above. With one last dying gasp, it wheezed, this is what birds, amphibians, and arachnid scorpions do. Two, four, and eight legs. You think you know it all, but you are only land, only sky. You cannot know my existence below the water. You cannot see the world in its totality. And all the while, you argue, the river dies. We die too. It is, after all, in your nature. Thank you. Wendy, thank you so much. You're welcome. Why do you think we are caught on the nature-nurture argument? I think the nature-nurture argument is, um, well, it's, it goes back to the days of phrenology, doesn't it? I mean, if you go back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I mean, you know, the shape of that uh, monster was the shape of a slave, I suppose. We've always being predisposed to think that one's um, physical appearance is, it, you know, describes their nature. But we know better than that now, of course, you know, with modern psychology. Mm. But, so, but that, 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 that idea is still there. But that, that persistent view that, you know, some people are just bad, inherently bad, and it's not yeah. society's fault that they're that way, yeah. they are just. Is that, does that make us feel less responsible 
as a society. Well, I think that that dies pretty hard, that idea. But the idea that I wanted to talk about was the polarisation of belief today mm. and politics. I suppose that's why I kind of wanted to move it on from it's not in my nature. I mean, I think that's an insult that we can sling at people. But there is a real deep polarisation, as I think everyone would agree, with one side not being able to understand the other's argument. And that's what I believe the Antidote Festival is supposed to be an antidote to. That's the poison being treated. <laughs> um, and, um, I mean, there's a lot of psych... The big area of psychology now is not really so much um, nature. Well, it's still nature and nurture. If you look at the work of the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, he's very interested in this. Um, what makes people vote the way they do, why that gulf is so big and how we can mend it. It is the uh, big argument today. He said something interesting recently about, um, you know, the fracturing of society as we know it now. And he talked about in, in days gone by, I guess we all knew what blasphemy was because we all had an understanding of what was being blasphemed against. There was a common understanding of, you know, what society was and what its mores were. And that with the sort of fracturing through... Um, social media and so forth, that um, that we no longer have that. Mm. He also talks about the neuroscience where by if you press a button and you have an, and someone agrees with you, that that is like... Um, uh, dopamine, right? Dopamine, yeah, that's right. Just like a rat pressing a button. But also neuroplasticity means that it's a circular argument. So the more you get dopamine from being agreed with, um, the more that um, you, the more extreme your beliefs become. And um, so it, it is a it is a really really um, difficult area. I mean, the the answer is. You know, interestingly, that I've, I, I guess, is is forums like this one that operate outside politics because politics is probably the greatest contributor, I think, to our ongoing, you know, our deepening of division. And so, I guess the idea is to sort of set up forums and structures outside politics that can, you know, bring us together to have is some it, more discourse. You think we can talk ourselves better? Pardon? We can talk ourselves better. We oh, can well. talk ourselves into... <laughs> Look, I mean, I tend to have a... I mean, I think that we are in the adolescent phase of the internet. I think we're in the teen phase. I have a great deal of hope that we will get better. Um, but, yeah, we're in... Uh, I don't think we'll talk ourselves better particularly, but um, we might, I don't know, love... Fuck ourselves better, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that might work. But you are Mrs Haverchat. I am Mrs. Have a chat. Yeah, I don't mind a chat. <laughs> um, this is close to all the time that we have. Um, I was going to tell a further story about my pet ducks, but it's just, it's not going to fit in. Um, oh, that is <laughs> I'll tell you afterwards, Wendy. It's yeah, really, oh, it's gripping it? stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but look, um, Kate, Fiona, Deborah and Wendy, thank you so much thank for you. coming and being part of Fables. Thanks. And uh, thank you, everyone who, uh, who stayed to listen. Yeah, thank you. Thanks.